welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode is the episode on objections to anarcho-capitalism. So in the previous episode, or the episode before the previous one, because the previous one was an update, but before that was one on anarcho-capitalism explaining what the theory is and what that philosophy is and how that would play out and what that looks like as far as the structure of a society and how a stateless society and lack of a government could actually potentially work. And obviously, if this is something that you do not have a lot of experience with, then this idea probably sounds a little crazy. You probably have many objections to it and many questions that seem like they cannot be answered. If you are very well-versed in the concept of anarcho-capitalism, I'm sure there are probably still many points that you get asked on a regular basis and that you have wrestled with yourself. And so this should help you to hone in your skills in dealing with these tough topics. And for those of you that are new to the concept, this should explain everything to you in a satisfactory way. You still may not like the idea. I'm not telling you you have to. But I at least hopefully will provide you with all the information you would need to see that it is at least a legitimate idea. So that's the goal here. The topics that I'm going to talk about in this case study episode here on the objections to anarcho-capitalism will be roads, because that's always the first question, then law and order and courts, we'll get into national defense, then monopolies, then talking about the poor, and then pollution, then maybe land and animal protection, then demand for government. There's those that still want government. And then we'll wrap up with child abuse and guns. So very interesting topics here that are hot political topics mostly, and they should be ones that came to your mind or have come to your mind when thinking about anarcho-capitalism because they are issues that need to be dealt with. They are questions that need to be answered, like the first one. Let's go ahead and start here. So without the state, who would build the roads? Don't you like roads? Don't you like bridges and infrastructure? They wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the state. The state builds those and funds those, and people wouldn't pay for those themselves. Well, let's look into this a little more. Let's see. How are roads built? Who builds them? Well, they're built by contractors or construction workers. Okay, so that's not the government. So how are these roads paid for? Well, they're paid for by taking money out of people's paychecks through taxation. So if the money comes from the people and they're built by construction workers, roughly, then where does the government fit in here as a middleman? And why do we need the middleman? That's a very good question. You might say that no one would be willing to pay for roads if it wasn't for the government forcing them to. Well, I would say that either A, then they shouldn't have roads because you should not be able to steal money from people even if you're building roads with it, or B, you're wrong and people actually would support the building of roads. Let's go with option B here, that people would actually support building roads. So let's talk about that. What would that look like? Well, roads would be funded by those who demand them. It's a basic rule of markets in general and the way society works, that if people want something and they are willing to pay for it, 
then those are the people that usually pay for it. That's how things work. So who would be interested in building roads? And I'm saying roads, but you can insert here bridges, infrastructure of all kinds, whatever, highways, it doesn't matter. All of it's basically the same overall concept here. So I'll stick with roads, but like I said, it applies to many things. So who would be interested in infrastructure and roads? Well, you've got investors and entrepreneurs. Maybe they see an opportunity that if they were to build a road, then they could make a profit after doing so. They would invest money up front and get this road built in this area that doesn't have one, but there is a high demand for people to get from point A to point B. Then once they build this road, then they would probably charge people to drive on this road. And then they would ideally, at least their idea, would be that they would make back their money and make a profit. And so that would be one group of people that might be interested in building roads, and that would be investors. Another group of people that would be interested in roads would be companies and property owners of all kinds. So companies need roads in order for customers to get to their stores. They also need roads in order for supplies to get to their stores. They also need roads in order to get their merchandise and their services out to their customers. There are many reasons why companies need roads. They would not be able to operate very efficiently in today's world without roads. I have seen many examples of this taking place on a small scale in today's world. We have an example of Pizza Hut who paid to fill in a lot of potholes in their delivery area because it was better for business so their people can go deliver pizzas quicker and easier. There is an example of Home Depot paying to repave a road, a connector road, that got them from the main drag to their store because it was in disrepair and customers were not happy about it. They didn't want to drive down this broken down road. And so they repaved it and that got them more customers and they paid for it all themselves. This type of thing has happened many times. It is something that just makes sense from an economic and business perspective. If a company can pay a certain amount of money up front and put it into this infrastructure, then they will reap the benefits of said investment. And that's how it works. So if you picture this on a larger level, say you have an industrial park that's being built with many different warehouses that will house many different businesses and factories. Well, it would make perfect sense that all of those businesses and factories, and let's just say that they're are businesses that are already ready to move into these. They're all going to be done at the exact same time. Everybody's going to move in at the exact same time. They can all communicate together. Let's uh, live in a dream world here for a second just to make this example work. But we have this industrial park and all these different companies and factories. Well, they would, and I say this confidently myself, that they would be willing to pitch in a small amount of peace in order to build a road from their industrial park to whatever the main road system is in their area, number one. Number two, a developer would not be interested in building an industrial park that was not close enough to a road system to make it practical to build a road and thus get people to buy those properties and businesses to move in there. So this all makes sense. Now, it also makes sense that businesses would be willing to pay a small monthly fee in order to keep up maintenance on these roads. And all of this is not so crazy. So there's one example. The same with property owners. You have this example for private roads. They do exist throughout the world. I've seen them in California 
and I have seen them in the southeastern United States. They are all over the place. So the way this works is that usually it's a small residential street, and it is technically owned and maintained by the people that live on that street. And when something goes wrong, or if the people want to add speed humps, or repave it, or fill in a pothole, or whatever, then they talk to each other, they pitch in, and they do it. They hire someone to fix the road, or do whatever they want to do. That exists today. Now, of course, there are people that are not interested, that want to drive a four-wheel drive vehicle, and are okay with a giant rut down the middle of the road, and potholes everywhere, and they think it's fun. Sure, that does exist. And I'm sure there would be issues there. But more than likely in a stateless society, if you are going to live on a certain street, there will probably be some sort of restrictions if you are going to live there that would come with the deed. For example, let's say that a developer buys a large chunk of 100 acres and he ends up putting roads through it and driveways and builds houses and sells them and a few subdivisions and a strip mall and all this stuff and all this is being developed. Well, probably all of these things that he is selling off and developing, he's probably going to sell them with a clause and a stipulation that if you buy this property, then you are responsible for paying X amount contributions to maintaining the roads. That would be a pretty simple thing to do. Then if someone was not interested in buying a property that came with that restriction, then they wouldn't buy the property. And then from the investor's side, the developer's side of things, it would ensure that the whole area is well-maintained so that as he continues to sell off properties and build, then it would be attractive for individuals and homeowners and companies to come in because all the roads are well-maintained and people seem to be happy there and everything looks nice. So that's another way that roads might be built and maintained. Well, what about if people are having to pay for roads and we are not counting on these homeowners or companies to do it. And I would say there's probably a mix of all these things that would actually happen. But let's say that we're getting away from companies or homeowners or property owners, those people paying for it, and let's push it onto the drivers themselves. That's another model that could work. You could have a subscription model where you pay a certain amount every month. And in exchange for that amount, you get to drive on certain networks of roads. And since this is a stateless society where all property is owned, privately owned, then there would be different companies that own the roads and they would charge for the roads. They would have different rules for their different roads. There would be multiple road networks. And more than likely, they would be willing to pitch in together and say, make a bundle deal for somebody if they want to drive on my road network or this other company's road network. They can pay a small monthly fee. We're going to divide it between the two of us and everybody's happy. That is not too crazy to think of. So a subscription model is a possibility. And whether that be to a single company or whether it be to a conglomerate of many companies, some sort of affiliation who knows? There are many options there. There might even be a company that you pay a monthly subscription to, then they handle micropayments to the different road operators for all the roads you drive on. So with today's technology, you can actually have a sensor in your car that senses when you are driving on a certain road. And again, all roads are owned, all property is owned. And so as you drive on someone's property, there's a certain toll that they require for you to drive on their road. And so what would happen in this model is that your monthly subscription fee 
just comes from you to that company, and that's it. But what that company does is they monitor all the sensor data for all the roads that you drive on, and they make sure that all of the independent road operators are paid for what you owe them. And so this is a company that would then handle all this thing, all this stuff for you in the background. Well, all you have to do is drive on the roads and pay a monthly fee. So that would make sense as well. It would be kind of like a data plan for a phone. Say if you go over a certain allotment of driving miles, then maybe you pay an extra fee or something like that, an overcharge. Who knows how that could work out? There's many different ways. But on top of that, you could just have direct micropayments where you have a sensor in your car. It's connected to a credit card or a bank account or a cryptocurrency wallet, whatever. And as you drive on roads, amounts are automatically deducted from your account to pay for the travel. Now, it's probably only going to be maybe five cents to drive on this one section of road and then another 10 cents to drive on another section. And as you get into the city, it probably gets more expensive because there's a lot more traffic. It's more expensive to maintain. It was more expensive to buy the property and build the roads, all this stuff. That would be my guess, at least. It might not be. Maybe there's so much more traffic that they can offer cheaper rates, and that incentivizes you to come into the city. Who knows? Again, this is all theory, but these are different theories that actually could work very well. So I think this presents many different ways that roads could be built and maintained without the state. So let's move on to the next topic, and that would be a big one. That would be law and order and courts. So how would we keep the peace and how would we settle disputes? That is a big question because right now the government has a monopoly on that. And so we have police departments and we have a court system and all of that is answerable to a local state or a country. And depending on where you live, that's handled differently in different countries and different parts of the world. But in general, the government handles all those things. I cannot think, at least off the top of my head, of any current countries that do not have government-run police departments and court systems. They could exist. I really don't know, to be honest. I think I would have heard of it because I've done a lot of research in these areas, but you never know. Maybe I've missed it. But in general, the government controls these things. So if the government didn't exist... Uh, would these things not exist either? Well, no. We still want law and order. We still want a court system. We still need to handle disputes. We need dispute resolution. All these things are still needed for an organized society, and they are still demanded for an organized society. People still want these things, so therefore these things would still exist. Supply and demand. That's the way markets work. And markets are king in a stateless society, because markets are what hold things in order. So... With this being said, for the law and order portion, let's talk about the role that police play. Right now, police handle everything related to crime. So they make sure that criminals are caught and arrested and brought to trial. They make sure that they can't get away. They protect people. They try to stop crime. There are many different things that police do. Well, in a stateless society where you didn't have these police departments... I would say that one option would be that you would just have private police departments and they would do the exact same thing and they would do it the exact same way, roughly. So what they would do is they would charge a certain amount every month, just like you pay every month or every year, or every quarter, depending on how your taxes are taken out and how your specific region handles paying for police. But it's all paid through taxation. 
And so that taxation is taken out of your paycheck at some point in time, or you pay it to your government at some point in time. And with that money, they provide you with police, at least a portion of that money. So it would basically be the same thing. You would have to pay a portion of your paycheck in order to fund a police department and get the services of that police department. So that's one option that it basically just stays the same. It's just private instead of public. So they actually do have to make sure they turn a profit or they at least break even. They would have to worry about lawsuits. They would not have the immunity that police departments have now. And they don't have a monopoly on the court system and they don't have a monopoly on making laws. They're not part of this same monopoly group, the government that handles all of these things. And so they would be a little more restricted in what they could do, and they would have more checks and balances against things like corruption and abuse of power because they would not be able to get away with it quite as easily as they could under current systems. There are plenty of examples of this, and I do not need to get into that. I'm sure you are perfectly aware. So let's look at an example that is a little different than today's system, because that's kind of the idea here. So the different idea would be that it's all handled by defense companies. And I say defense companies is a broad term because there would be many different types. They would be specialized. There would be competition in the market. There would be different demands in the market. And all of this would be provided for by these defense companies. So you would have some that would be patrolling. You would have some that would offer investigative services. You would have some that would track down criminals and hunt them down like bounty hunters types. You would have some that offer protection like bodyguards, that type of thing. There's many different services that defense companies could provide or they could bundle it all together and provide it all. But defense companies would definitely exist. There would definitely be a demand for it. And whatever form they would take, they would be there. Now, the first option for funding them, because that's always the question, is how do you pay for it if the government's not stealing your money to make sure that it's paid for? Well, you could pay for it with a monthly fee, like we've talked about before. That's a very basic way that things work in today's society. Very common, where you pay a certain amount every month, and in exchange, you get the certain services that are offered. And you could pay for different packages depending on what services you would want. That's an option. Another option would be that some insurance policies and insurance companies would probably cover this stuff. So you have insurance companies that are going to be playing a much bigger role in a stateless society because there is no government monopoly that is taking the fall for things going wrong and there is no government to step in when things fail. Therefore, there is more risk that exists in this society, at least at first from an outside perspective, it seems like there would be more risk here. And so there, whether there would be more risk or not, even if there wasn't, there would still be a need for these things to be covered. The government is not covering these things, so who would? Well, insurance companies, more than likely. It would probably be very common for everyone to have a life insurance policy. They might have a defense policy. They might have other various types of policies. But an insurance company would likely be incentivized to make sure that their customers are provided with certain ways of lowering the risk of the insurance company having to pay out on a policy. 
And so the way that that would likely work would be that I would pay my insurance company for a life and defense policy. And then if anything were to happen to me, whether I get mugged or my house is broken into or someone kills me or I die in a car wreck, whatever the case may be, then the insurance company would pay for it. I would have a policy that covers all these things and they would pay for it. So it's kind of like how insurance companies oftentimes will pay for a gym membership for their members because it lowers their health risks. It would be very similar here, where if an insurance company paid for protection services for at least overall broad defense services in a region that they have a lot of customers, then that would lower their risk by a great deal and therefore lower their costs and therefore increase their profits. And so there would be a balancing point there at some point, a break-even point, and they would probably try to find something that is right around that point where they are able to invest as much as they can while still receiving a profit from that and making sure they maximize their profits. And so they would invest by paying defense companies for doing certain services for their customers. And in exchange, they are paying out much fewer insurance policies, so their expenses are much lower, and the difference there would net them a higher profit. So you could see how either private individuals might pay for defense companies or insurance companies would be incentivized to do so as well. Now, the issue here when you talk about defense companies that everyone seems to worry about is what about the warlords? So wouldn't one of these defense companies just overtake all the others and take over everything and run the whole world as a warlord? Well, probably not. But the question is why? So what would stop them from doing that? Well, the number one thing would just be that in a society with competition and many different competitive defense departments and different groups that do these kinds of things, it would actually just be too costly to do this, to fight and to have wars going on within your region and to fight other defense companies. You are spending so much money having to fight this war without knowing whether you're going to get any profit in the end anyway that it's probably not really worth it. It costs too much money. It's a lot cheaper to just make a deal with your comp competing defense departments and defense agencies and make sure that you can come to some arrangement that maybe if you guys are patrolling the same area that you won't mess with each other. Or if one person grabs a customer of this other defense company, then they'll turn them over to them. Or if there is a dispute between the two, that they would make sure they go to this specific court system that's a neutral party or whatever the case may be, but more than likely there would be agreements among these different defense companies and they would play nice together, not because they are just nice people, but because it is cheaper and they can make more money doing it this way. So that would make a lot of sense here. So you would also have local defense companies, or if you're going negative here, local cartels and gangs would be kept in check by regional defense departments. And so... If you have a local gang that sprang up in a neighborhood or in a city and they start running the city, well, let's say this is in Atlanta. Well, you're probably going to have some overall large insurance companies and defense departments um, that would be incentivized to go ahead and take out this gang and restore order in the city 
so that they can have more customers, number one. And so the insurance companies are not going to pay out on all the policies associated with all of the crime and violence that is happening under the rule of this horrible warlord gang. And you would probably have many more customers available to these insurance companies because they would probably not be wanting to provide a policy for people that live under the rule of a violent warlord. I doubt that would be a very profitable venture and a profitable customer, so they probably wouldn't do that. Now, they probably would have had policies out on many of these people before the warlord took over, and so they would have to worry about those customers, but I highly doubt they would be offering any new policies, at least not at an affordable rate at all. So that would be another incentive for these local gangs or warlords to be basically taken out by the regional players and the surrounding players. And it would make sense that even if there wasn't a big dominant regional defense company that was in the area, that the other local smaller defense companies that are around them it would make sense that they would partner up together, they would form an alliance to take the city back over, and then maybe they'd have a deal worked up, kind of like we did during World War One to split up the Middle East, that kind of stuff, where before you go into battle, you divvy up the land ahead of time so that once you are victorious and once you kick out the warlord or the gang, then you already know what the boundaries are and which company is going to uh, mainly patrol which areas and that kind of stuff. But again, the bottom line here is that this is a stateless society. There are no forced services that are provided through theft of the customers. And so the way this works is that it's voluntary exchange. So the only people that are wanting the protection of defense companies are people that are actually wanting it and they are willingly paying for it and so those are going to be the customers so you can't necessarily divide up these customers ahead of time and say hey i got this guy and this guy and this guy you get that guy and that guy because that guy and that guy might prefer to be with company b instead of you you never know but you could break up regions, have a bigger presence. There are many different ways of handling that. And if you are part of a defense company that came in and liberated a neighborhood and all of the local residents there saw you take out the gang members and protect them and save their lives and restore peace and order to their area, they might be more willing to pay you for your services of continued protection. They might be interested in giving you some extra money as a thank you. There are many different potential things that could be beneficial for a defense company to come in and do this. But those are many different ways that a warlord or a gang that sprang up would likely be dealt with. Now, let's get into arbitration and settling disputes. Because obviously, if you don't have a government or a state, then you do not have a centralized court system that is wrapped into all of these other departments like police and investigation and all that kind of stuff. Most likely, all of these things would be separate. Now, there likely would be a few companies that might pair certain different services together. So you might have a company that does provide some defense services as well as some court services. Those probably still would exist. But you're not going to have one group that has a monopoly on all of it, period, like we have today with the state. So if you have competing court systems, how does this work? Well, number one, the question would be corruption. So what would stop rich people from just paying the courts more in order to get their case decided in their direction, and then they get off scot-free for a crime that they committed? 
that is a common objection to this issue here of how a court system would work without the state. Well, number one, these courts are competing for voluntary customers, and thus they would be kept honest through this mechanism. Because if they were to side with whoever pays the most, then it would be very unlikely that many people would be interested in going to that court system. If they know that justice will not be served, and if they know that whoever they're going to court against can pay off the system, then they will probably be less inclined to give this company their money and buy their services. So that would be one thing that would keep these courts honest. You also would likely have PR issues here where if a court system found someone guilty or not guilty that they shouldn't have, then that would get out into the news and into the media. It would make them look bad. There would likely be smear campaigns by their competitors to make sure that everyone knows that they look bad, and it would just not be very good for business. So when we have a society like this, these systems are going to be incentivized to actually provide justice, because if they don't, they will likely have a much smaller market share and much smaller profits and more than likely just go out of business because why would someone go to them? That doesn't make a lot of sense. The rich person might want to go to them, but if the person they're taking to court says, no, that company's corrupt and they can get their opinion backed up by all of that company's competitors, then that's probably not going to hold a lot of sway in this society. So, that's likely the biggest check on honesty and corruption would just be this competition and market system that is involved and at work here. So another thing that would likely be in existence would be that you would have contracts between individuals or businesses or insurance companies, defense companies, whatever, all these different groups that partner together for business would likely have in their contract a clause that would specify a certain court system or certain options for dispute resolution ahead of time. So they might have a clause that says, if there is a dispute between party A, which is me, the individual, and party B being, let's say, a defense company that I'm hiring, then this dispute will be heard at either arbitration company A or court system B, and that will be at the discretion of the customer. And so that clause would be in our contract. And then if there was a dispute between me and the defense company, then we would know exactly what to do. I, as the customer, would be able to choose between going to arbitration company A or court system B and having my case heard and getting this dispute resolved. So that would likely exist between lots of different groups. If there are two businesses doing business together, they would likely have a clause in their contract that if there is a dispute, they would have it resolved through this certain method or by this certain group, and there would be some neutral party that they would choose and both agree with ahead of time. That would just make sense. That's good business. That creates stability, and that's what businesses want. Stability, predictability. These are things that are very good for business because it allows them to just do business and not really have to worry about this other stuff and these potential complications. And so this would smooth things out. And that's likely the way that things would be set up ahead of time through a contract system. Now, you could potentially appeal to another court. So if you went to a court and you believe that your case was misjudged, 
you could go to any other court if you wanted to pay for it. There's nothing stopping you. This is a voluntary society here. So you could. And if you did, there would be the potential that that other court would come to a different decision on the case. Now, if that were the case, then you would have two competing verdicts there. And so that would have to be resolved. Now, either that would be resolved by these two different court companies or arbitration companies getting together and having an overall joint committee that would decide the case that would be in both of their best interests. Or you might have a case where the company B that you went to second would talk to company A and make sure they got all the facts straight and try to work something out and see why they came to the conclusion they did. That might happen. Or you might have just a third party, another court system or arbitration company that would be asked to come in as a tiebreaker. There might be whole companies that just do this, and that's what they do as their business, and they would be hired by the court systems to come in and do this. Now, why would the court systems actually hire an outsider to come in and hear their case? Because they just decided the case. And this other company that decided differently, well, they're wrong. So why would I pay as a court company to have this heard again and get this dealt with all over again when I've already dealt with it? Well, the motivation here is that you want stability. You want people to be able to have confidence in the court system. And since the court system is not a monopoly that's all ran by the same group, people are going to be much more sensitive to issues within this court system because there are many different parts and pieces that are working together. This is a very decentralized system here. And so all of the court companies want to make sure that people feel comfortable going to a court. They feel comfortable going to an arbitration company. They feel comfortable going to any dispute resolution company that exists out there. Because if they don't feel comfortable, they're probably not going to pay for it, and they're probably going to take things into their own hands or something of that nature, and that's not what you want. So they would be incentivized to make sure that issues like this, where there are conflicting verdicts, would get figured out and settled in a satisfactory manner in a way that would not make the system as a whole, the way that society is held together in this stateless society, that would not make that look bad and make people question the system, because you don't want that. That's bad for business. So that is something that would be at play as well. Now, with this stateless society, you don't have one law that rules the entire land. Now, maybe you could say the non-aggression principle, where you may not initiate force on another person and by extension their property. That could be a law that would apply throughout the entire land. I would guess that probably does. But beyond this, you don't have an overall group that's deciding all the laws. But you would likely have common law rules that would develop over time and they would determine how all of these types of decisions would be made. So you would likely have different courts that would hear different disputes and depending on how they resolved that dispute, another court system might reference that case just like happens today and they would say, well, this judge has already ruled that this is considered initiation of force, and therefore we are going to rule in this way again. And through this mechanic, you would have a common law system that would develop. Now, this existed in Rome. This existed afterwards with the Germanic tribes. This existed in the Middle Ages. This has existed in many different times throughout history. 
Some of this even exists today, and so this isn't a crazy idea that this would be the way the law of the land would be figured out. This is an historically accurate way that the law of the land has been figured out in the past and in different cultures all around the world. So that is a very likely scenario here. So what about the defendant? What about the person that's accused of a crime? What if they don't want to go to court? Someone says they committed a crime. They say, well, no, I didn't. And I'm just going to sit at my house and do nothing and not show up. Well, that's perfectly fine, because whoever is accusing them of the crime can still go to a court, can still have the case heard, and if the person does not want to defend themselves, that is perfectly fine. The court would handle providing some sort of defense for the person, or at least an investigation into the evidence, before they would issue a verdict. Because if they just issued a verdict willy-nilly, and then it turned out that they were wrong— because they didn't investigate it enough, and they basically just said, well, this person came first, you didn't show up, therefore you're guilty. Well, if they actually did that, then again, that would look bad. People wouldn't want to use their services. People wouldn't have faith in their court system or their company. And so that would probably not be something that would happen. More than likely, it would get investigated. There would be a verdict. And that is how it would get figured out whether or not the defendant was there. Now, there are are always going to be defendants because in a stateless society, crimes are always against individuals. They are never against the state. The state does not exist. So you do not have people that are being heard on cases where there is not an accuser and a defendant because that just doesn't exist. Now, right now, that exists all the time. There are plenty of what are commonly known as victimless crimes where there are crimes that people committed and it's said to be against the state. They didn't actually hurt anybody. They didn't actually destroy any property. They didn't actually cause any damages of any kind, but yet they are guilty of breaking a law. And in doing so, they have committed a crime against the state and they are heard in a state court and they are convicted in a state court, typically. And that happens today. But that would not happen under this system. You would only have people that would be convicted of crimes when there was a true crime, when there actually was damages, there was an initiation of force or overuse of force, there was some sort of hurt that was done or wrong that was done to somebody or to some company, and this would always exist. So it's always a legitimate dispute, I should say. So what about punishment? In today's system, that is the focus on the courts and on a verdict is how you are going to punish the criminal. And usually that is added up in jail time. So how long are you going to put this person in jail? That is our punishment. Well, more than likely, that would not really exist in a stateless society. It's very inefficient. It doesn't really make any sense whatsoever because you have to pay for these people that are in jail. So it is costing you money to put people in jail. Not only that, but people are not getting rehabilitated in jail. Statistically, usually people are more likely to commit crimes and meet other criminals and join other gang networks if they go to prison. So going to prison actually increases crime and it costs money and it does not bring any restoration to the victim. So what is the benefit here? I, I don't know. That's another topic for another time. But the point is that this is kind of dumb and would probably not exist in a stateless society because it's unprofitable and dumb. And so what would exist? Well, more than likely, it would be a restitution-based, not a punitive-based system where when a criminal is convicted of a crime, they would have to 
make restitution for the crime that they committed, at least to the greatest degree that is possible, as dictated by the court or arbitrator. And so the way this would look is that if someone, let's say, mugged another person and stole their money, well, if they are found guilty of that charge, the court would likely say that they have to pay back the certain amount of money that they stole, and they have to pay for medical expenses, and they might have to pay some sort of something similar to like pain and suffering, something like that, some sort of additional punishment. And that is the punishment on the person. And that's it. So you may ask, well, what's to stop them from just doing this again? Well, eventually they're going to go broke because they will not be able to afford if they get caught at least more than once, if they keep getting caught, then they won't be able to afford it because every time they're going to have to pay not only what they stole, but more and more on top of that. And if they're convicted multiple times, those restitution payments might be even higher, or maybe they would have to pay more to an insurance company if they wanted insurance on themselves or a defense company if they wanted protection from a defense company. All of these things would be more expensive for a convicted criminal and so they would start running out of money. And when you have no money and you get convicted of a crime, well, that would be the next question. What happens if you cannot make restitution? Or what happens if you are unwilling? What if you are non-compliant? So the overall simplest thing here would just be that this is a world of private property. So this criminal let's say they actually do have property. Let's give them that. We'll grant them that, that they have a house and they own it. They own their land. Well, let's say that this person is unwilling to heed the verdict of a court. And maybe that court actually found them guilty of murder. This is a very serious charge. And this person is due for some very harsh punishments. And it's not only just paying a fine because they killed somebody, it is actually going to restrict their movements and restrict where they're going to be allowed to go. They're going to be put on a list or they probably already are on a list where many companies won't allow them to come to their businesses. And this is going to have a large major effect on that person's life. And there might actually be systems that would require some sort of physical punishment for crimes like this, and it might be capital punishment. I don't know. There's no telling what would develop here, but let's just say that you have this murderer, he's unwilling to come in, and he's on his own property. And so, number one, you could say that the victim, or likely the victim's insurance company or defense company, would come and just forcibly remove the person from their property. That is one option, and that could happen. That's fairly likely. Option number two is that the person would basically just be under siege at their own property or under sanctions of some kind. So the person would not basically be able to leave their property because all the properties surrounding them are owned by different property owners. And so you could have it just be that all these property owners are not interested in allowing a convicted murderer to come onto their property. And if a convicted murderer does come on their property, they will kindly tell them to leave or just shoot them. And that is a possibility. So the person will not be able to leave their property at all, possibly. Let's say they just want to, and they don't care what their neighbor thinks. They're going to walk across their yard anyway. This one neighbor's a pacifist anyway. He's not going to do anything. So I'll just go through his property and then sneak out and get into town. Well, unfortunately for our murdering friend, he is now on a list, and this would likely be a national list on some sort of database, likely a blockchain database or something that's irrefutable and public, 
And when he got put on this list, all of the relevant defense companies are probably going to be made aware of this, as well as all the insurance companies, because this man is a risk. He is a risk to the safety of all of their customers. And the insurance company does not want him murdering more people than they have to pay out life insurance policies. The defense companies do not want him going around hurting other people because then they have to then also pay for a breach of contract because they didn't protect them, and so on and so forth. So these defense companies and these insurance companies would be incentivized to make sure that a convicted murderer does not leave their premises if the surrounding property owners do not want them to. So it would make perfect sense for them to maybe set up surveillance cameras all around the person's property with sensors and everything, and they would have to get the permission of the property owners around them. If those property owners were not interested, then you just go to the next property owner over because you can always form a boundary of some kind, and if there is a gap there, then you just watch the gap. It's not all that difficult with today's technology even, much less the technology of the future. This should not be very hard to do. I am sure that defense companies and insurance companies can make sure that they keep tabs on one person at one property. That, again, is probably not very hard. And with this, more than likely, a defense company would make sure that they have local patrols that are very close by because this person, again, is a high risk to try to bolt for it and then hurt somebody. So you want to make sure that someone is very close so that they can stop them if this were to happen. Maybe you just post someone on patrol 24-7. There's always one employee that is somewhere around the outside of this person's property, making sure that they're right there in case that person tries to break free. So again, there are many different ways that this could play out, but more than likely the person would basically be under siege at their own property. Now, hopefully they stocked up beforehand before they committed murder and didn't go to court, but even if they did, I'm sure they couldn't live forever. And even if they did, let's say they, not forever, but for the rest of their life and they die of natural causes, well, they basically are in a prison of their own making, which is the system we have today, but they are not able to actually hurt more people while they're in prison or meet more criminals or get out on parole or any of the other problems and complications that we have in today's system. Instead, they have a prison at their house that they can't leave ever for the rest of their life. And yeah, so that's... Uh, I would say, something that many people would consider to be a good enough punishment. And again, you might also just have groups come in and forcibly take them because that person has initiated force on someone else already. Therefore, another group, another party under the authority of the victim would be able to come in and retaliate with force against that person. So they might not be able to just stay under siege. They might be forced to leave the premises and suffer the consequences. You never know. But Within this, let's start to wrap this up here when it comes to this unrepentant criminal. Well, what happens when you have a system like this, but someone may not have property, or maybe they're not really interested in being under siege at their own house, but they don't have the money to pay the restitution payment? Maybe this is a person that committed assault, and they owe $1,000. All they have is $100. What the heck are they supposed to do? They just don't have the money. So what else are they going to do? Well, more than likely, there would be some sort of, let's call them prison companies, for lack of a better word. But the way this would work would be that a company would have some sort of compound that would be very secure, and they would offer rooms and jobs to convicted criminals. So if a convicted criminal was interested, they could voluntarily sign a contract with this prison company. They would come and stay at their compound. They would not be allowed to leave. 
and this company would be entitled to probably a decent portion of the profits that this criminal might make while they're working for this prison company. So maybe you have a company that basically has a factory on site and they make clothing. And so they allow convicted criminals to come in and work in their factory. And as they're working, they can actually make money, which then goes to pay the restitution payments that they owe. And so they're being compliant with the court verdict that they were found guilty under. And with the extra profits, basically a small amount of the money these criminals would be able to take and pay for restitution. But the rest of the money would probably go to this prison company, and that's how they make a profit. That covers room and board, that covers food, and that covers profits because this is a company, it has to make a profit, and that's the only reason why they set up this prison compound is so that they can make a profit. So... That's likely the way it would work. You would have companies like this or compounds or factories that would be like this that would exist probably all around the world. You would have ones in different regions, ones of different types. They would probably all look differently. You would probably have insurance companies and defense companies really making sure that they are very secure. And if not, patrolling the area around it very securely themselves. So this would probably be a system that would likely work pretty well. The criminals would be happy because they would have somewhere to stay. They would be able to make money and pay for restitution, even if it's something that they can never make restitution for. And this is basically like a life sentence that they are never going to be allowed on anybody else's property for the rest of their lives. Well, at least they have somewhere to live with other people. They can make money. They can do something. It might be limited, but they can at least do something and they are safe. They're not having to worry about the victim's family coming into their house, breaking in and shooting them in the head because of the crimes that they committed. No, this company would actually keep them safe on their compound and also keep them secure. And so this is something that would make a lot of sense and would likely work very well. Now, the other option would just be that you would have exile as an option. So if you were not satisfied, maybe there's some island and you just send everybody to the island or you send everybody to some remote area of the wilderness that you can't get out of because of some natural barrier. And that's what you do. So basically they're allowed to live out the rest of their lives with nature or in nature, however they see fit, at least to the best of their capabilities. And they'll probably die out there and Yeah, that's just the way it is. So that's another option. You can just do exile and kick them out of all civilized land. So that's possible. Moving on to a similar topic, let's hit on national defense, because this is a very big one as well, where people wonder, well, if we have a stateless society, and let's use America as the example, what if America just lost their government and you had probably Canada, America, and Mexico all just was one big region. It wasn't divided up the way it is now, but there is no overall government or state to protect it. What is to stop an invading force from coming in or a terrorist group from coming and bombing the place or whatever, whatever kind of violence, national issues would come up? What's to stop that from happening? Where is our national defense? Well, number one you would have less of a need because you would have a lack of intervention and therefore a lack of blowback around the world. Because in a stateless society, you don't have a government that's incentivized to have endless wars all around the world. And because you are not participating in endless wars all around the world and regime changes in other countries, then you are likely not upsetting the 
other side of those conflicts and causing them to have a desire to come and destroy your people with violence. So if you are not incentivizing other people to come attack your country, then you're probably going to have less people come attack your country. That just makes sense. In addition to this, defense of a regional area, and let's say the Americas, for example, is actually not all that expensive when you compare it to the amount of money that's spent on war in the current, let's say, American nation. There are billions of dollars every year, if not trillions, that are spent on war all around the world. And in order to just defend the country of America, it would just cost a fraction of that to just cover the coasts with missile defense systems and entrenched batteries and just all this kind of stuff. There's even, there are reports of planes that had lasers on them that could shoot missiles out of the sky back in, I think it was the 90s, maybe even the 80s. I'd never heard anything else about that. I came across it in my research at one point in time and never heard any updates. Basically, we had planes that shot lasers and missiles out of the sky decades ago, but somehow, I guess, lost the technology or never applied it. Who knows what? There's probably some corruption going on there in some way, but we won't touch on that. The point is that with today's technology, as well as future technology that would exist and current technology that we do not possibly know about, there would probably not be much difficulty in providing actual defense of a region. And so with that, the expense is much, much, much smaller than the expense for what's classified as defense in today's countries. And that's because most of that budget is not actually for physical defense. So that would be one thing. But still, it does cost money, and it is expensive. It's not like it's 10 bucks to install a missile battery. No, it's a lot more money to do so. But you have a lot more incentive for people to step up if the government is not forcibly taking their money and forcing them to step up. You would have insurance companies that want to make sure that their people are not going to be killed by a terrorist attack, because if they are, they have to pay out on all those policies. Same with a defense company. They would have to pay out on all their policies because they did not protect their clients. Same with companies and businesses. They don't want their factories destroyed because that would probably ruin business. At least, it would put a damper on their business activities. So they probably don't want that. And more than likely, at least some individuals would want to make sure that they did not have their region attacked by an outside force. Some maybe are just patriotic, and even though you don't have a country of America, they just feel that they are Americans. They all live together. It's the same ideal. Uh, they have the same ideology, and so they're going to pitch in to protect this country, this region, you know, whatever you want to call it, and they're going to pitch in because they're true patriots, and you would have people like that. So you have all these different groups that actually would want to pitch in for national defense. And between them all, that's a whole lot of money. More than likely, it's plenty of money to cover things like national defense if you are actually focused on defense. So that would be probably your main way that this would get funded. In addition to actually providing physical defense, it would actually be a lot harder to take over a region like this because it's not just a bunch of defenseless civilians that are restricted by their government's gun laws and not allowed to have weapons to protect themselves. No, this is a region, a country, call it continent, whatever you want to call it, whatever this region is, 
it's an area that is inhabited by people with lots of guns and lots of defenses. More than likely, most people would have, at a bare minimum, some maybe an assault rifle, shotgun, pistols, something like that, some sort of defensive weapon that they could use offensively as well if there was an invading force. But there would also be plenty of people that would pitch in for some bigger equipment. Some people might want tanks. You might have some companies, more than likely defense companies, that would have aircraft. Maybe they would even have things like bombers or fighter jets, or someone might have missiles themselves. People might have rocket launchers. Heck, who knows? You never know. There are people that would have all different kinds of things and companies that would have all different kinds of weapons, and this would not be a very easy society to take over. If an invading force wanted to try to do so, it would be extremely costly for them in lives and in money and might not even be possible. So that would be a deterrent as well. Even if you did have an invading force come in, more than likely all of the defense companies would probably be willing to ally together in order to kick this invading force out. And you would probably have defense companies from all over the region, all over the continent, that would be willing to mobilize and come kick out these invaders so that they can keep their society, keep the stability, keep their customers, keep their profits, keep everything they want to keep. And so if you had, let's say, thousands, tens of thousands of different defense companies with all different types of forces and equipment and military-grade weapons and strategic assets, all this kind of stuff, all coming to bear on this one invading force, then that would probably put up a decent amount of resistance. So there is another option for national defense. All of these are probably going to apply here. Now, let's say that the invading force did come and they did take over an entire region. Let's say they came to the United States via Russia and took over Alaska. And now they control all of Alaska and all the civilians and companies that are there. Well, all these people have been living in a stateless society for some time now, and they're probably very uninterested in being ruled over by warlords or by another forcible government. And so they're probably going to be a little more difficult to keep under tabs and to keep from rebelling against their new overlords. And so with this, the population would be more difficult to control, more difficult to subdue, and therefore would be less likely to be desired to be taken over as a population in general. Why would a country come and take over Alaska if they know it's just going to be a money pit, that their civilians are just going to keep fighting back, there's going to keep being resistance movements, there's going to be arms that are going to be smuggled in over and over again, the other regions that are surrounding the area are going to up all their defenses on the border to make sure you can't come any further, if not, go on the offense and try to take you out, and none of the population is going to be willingly working for you. Even if you have slave labor, they're going to slow walk you. It's just not very profitable. And I, it, there's not a whole lot of motivation there unless you just have a really evil person that just really wants to take over people. Now, that's possible, but I think it is much more unlikely. So overall, I think that covers many of the major questions related to national defense in a stateless society. Let's go to a fairly similar topic here. The next one is monopolies. So number one, if you actually look at the original definition for monopoly, that is a company that's given the exclusive right to a certain business by its government. 
And so without a government, you cannot have a government giving a right to a company. Therefore, a monopoly is impossible. But in the way we think of it today as a monopoly being a business or company or group that has sole control over one whole sector, then yes, that could exist. It would be very unlikely to exist due to all the competition that's going on and many of the other factors that I've already talked about ad nauseum over and over again. So I won't get into that again, but let's just say that a monopoly does start to pop up. Against all odds, it does happen. And so if it did happen, I would argue that it would actually be good for consumers and it would be kept in check by startups and by innovation. So number one, how would a monopoly be able to come to power in a stateless society? Well, they would have to take over the market. How are you going to take over the market without being able to use force? Well, you would have to provide a product or service at a cheaper rate than your competitors. And you would have to offer at least a quality that was good enough for your customers. You would have to meet their demands better than all of your competitors. And therefore, you would take over the market. So you would have to provide better and cheaper products than everybody else. And if the consumers, if everybody that lives in this region is going to be subjected to cheaper and better products, how horrible would that be? Well, oh well. Let's say that they do this, and it is good for everybody, but then they just jack up their prices. Well, nothing is stopping competitors from coming in. These monopolies cannot get the government to start up regulations and restrictions to keep people out of the market. Instead, the markets are open, and anybody can jump in. So as soon as a monopoly starts jacking up their prices, then someone else would come in, more than likely, and undercut them. Now, if there is a monopoly then they probably do have a lot of infrastructure in place. They probably have economies of scale that are massive, and they probably do have a lot of room to work with. So they could probably price out all their competition, become a monopoly, and still start raising their prices without a competitor being able to come in profitably and compete against them. But still, they would still be the best option out there. People would still, although they're paying more than they were when this monopoly first took power, they're still paying less than they would if there were any other competitors in the system. And so, yeah, so it's still not necessarily a bad thing. When I mention startups and innovation, I'm not just talking about normal competitors that come into the market. I'm more talking about total different ways of doing things, things that are innovations in that industry. So maybe instead of making shoes by hand and sewing them together. There's a new company that develops this machine that puts shoes together really well, really efficiently and really cheaply. And so even though it's a brand new startup and they do not have any economies of scale yet, they can still outprice this monopoly just because they're so much more efficient. They found a better way of doing it. Then maybe there's another one that comes along and they 3D print shoes. And maybe that's a lot cheaper and a lot quicker, a lot more efficient, a lot higher quality and so maybe they can come in and overturn the market and overturn the monopoly. There are many possibilities here. The point is that if you have a monopoly, it's probably not such a bad thing. And if it becomes a bad thing, it's probably not going to be a monopoly for long. So that's at least the way that seems to be obvious to me. If you address the issue of monopoly, what are people worried about? Well, usually people are worried about a company taking over everything. They're not just worried that one company will control all the potato chips in the land and will have complete control over what flavors you may and may not buy in the store. 
No, people are probably going to be worried that they're going to take over, let's say, all the food. And then they control what people can and can't do because if you don't listen to them, then they won't give you your food. And it's going to be something major like this. Well, let's say, number one, that they try to do this and you have a monopoly on, let's say, food. I highly doubt you get a monopoly on all food, but maybe you get a monopoly on all mass-produced vegetables. And one company is now controlling all the mass production farms all around the region that you can get your hands on. It has to come through this one company. And then they start to use this as leverage against you. And you must start paying them taxes. They won't call it taxes. You will call it some sort of extortion payment in order to be able to have the privilege of buying their vegetables. And you have no other option. There's no other vegetables out there. Well, let's say this did happen. How are they going to force you to pay this extortion payment? Well, you say that you can't get vegetables anywhere else, but you can just grow your own. And I'm sure plenty of people are doing that now because this monopoly took over and it's really expensive. So they're not going to pay for that. They don't trust them. They're going to grow their own food. And then they're going to sell some in a farmer's market. You can go to the farmer's market. And yeah, there are many other options. You're never going to be able to get rid of all the competition in a stateless society, at least. So what does this monopoly have to do in order to make sure that people are not going to be able to grow their own food and not going to be able to find it anywhere else, they're going to have to use force. They're going to have to show up at your door with a gun to your head and say, you will give me my money and buy my vegetables or else I will shoot you. And so they would have to use force. That is basically the only way of doing this. And then if they show up to someone's house and they have a garden in their backyard with vegetables in it, then they shoot them as well. Well, this would be horrible. This would probably be what people are saying. They're like, yeah, see, this would be bad. We don't want this. We need a state. Well, my argument would be that this company is going to go out of business very quickly. If they're having to go around the entire region to everybody's house door by door and make sure that they are not growing food or getting it anywhere else and make sure that they are going to pay their money, they're not going to be able to afford this. It doesn't matter how much they try to steal from people. They're going to go broke. And probably even before they go broke, a competitor will likely come in. People will start buying from them. You'll probably have defense agencies and insurance companies that are going to keep this initiation of force at bay. And this would just never really work. But let's just say that this did work. And they were able to do this, but not only with your vegetables, with your entire food supply that they control regulation for every piece of food production in your entire region. They also are going to take over all the defense companies in your region. They're going to take over all the court systems. They're going to take over national defense. They're going to take over roads and infrastructure. They're going to take over all regulation for all companies and all business that occurs in their entire region. They control it all and at the force of a gun. Then that is a monopoly to be feared. I would agree with you. However, that is the state. That is the current monopoly that we live under right now. So, yeah, we already have your worst nightmare. How much worse is it going to be? I would say that even if a warlord took over in a free and prosperous and armed society, that warlord would actually have to gain the support of the people, at least to some degree, or else they're going to get overthrown. It's not going to work out. There's going to be rebellion. It's going to be too costly. They're not going to be able to support their new state that they've set up. And so they're going to have to get people on their side. And they might be able to do so. But if they were, and they are getting the support of the people, then how is that any different than a government today? 
So that would be another argument against monopolies. Hey, we already have the worst possible kind we can have. You know, some are more evil than others. There are plenty of governments throughout the world that have been very evil. There are plenty that have not, uh, at least depending on how you look at it, have not been quite as evil. You could say America, for example, is a symbol of freedom and liberty. But at the same time, they kill thousands of people all across the world every year. Their government does. And they incarcerate more of their population than any other country in the world. And their police forces kill more of their population than about any other country in the world. Yeah, so you get the point. Even though that might be considered a good government and not an evil government, there is still plenty of evil to be had under the scenes. Let's move on from this and go on to the poor. We're always worried about the poor. There will always be poor in a society that's never going to get fixed. It's never going to go away. So the question really is, how do you deal with this? Right now, the state can step in and take care of the poor. They can provide a social safety net. They can provide welfare systems. And look at how good they do at it right now. Well, let's just pretend like they actually do do a good job at it right now. And so let's say, well, how would a stateless society work in this regard? Well, number one, a stateless society, as we talked about before, is probably going to be a lot more prosperous, a lot more efficient, a lot more effective, a lot higher profits for everyone. The state is not stealing money from you. You're not paying any taxes. So there's a lot more money to go around, number one. And that definitely would fuel things like charities and nonprofits and groups and companies and individual charity as well. So there would be a lot more ability for people to help the poor themselves and to group up and help the poor through a charity or nonprofit organization. So that's one possibility. But you say people are selfish. They have more money. They're just going to keep it. So what is going to truly take care of the poor? Well, number one, you actually have no regulations because there is no state. So with this, there are a lot more work opportunities for people that are poor. It's not like there is a minimum wage and therefore it keeps a check on lots of jobs. So let's say right now, if you live in San Francisco, you might not be able to get a job. Well, the minimum wage is, I don't know what it is now, 15 bucks an hour, 20 bucks an hour, somewhere around there. And so with this, if you are a business and you are f being forced to pay somebody, let's say it's 15 bucks an hour because I don't have any desire to actually look that up. But so let's say a company has to pay $15 an hour, they're forced to, they are not going to get some unskilled young worker to come fill that position because they're paying 15 bucks an hour. They want to get their money's worth out of this so that they can actually make a profit. They're going to go bankrupt if they do that. So it really limits who can get a job. So let's say there is someone that is really poor. They really need to work. Well, they're willing to work for 10 bucks an hour. Heck, they're willing to work for five bucks an hour, but it's illegal in today's system. So maybe they work under the books and then they have to watch out for the police and then they're skipping out on their taxes because if they do pay taxes under the current system and they're getting illegal money that they're just turning themselves in, that's not a very good idea. And so you have all these consequences, unintended consequences, the state's full of them and they just keep rolling in. Well, in a stateless society you actually don't have regulations against who can work and for how much. So if someone is really poor, maybe they would be willing to work for a meal a day. You know, that's that's nothing. That's not fair by most people's standards, but hey, it actually is better than starving on the street. So the poor would actually have an opportunity to support themselves in some way. 
Now, you may say that a company is going to take advantage of this and it's going to ruin the whole society and no one's going to hire anybody for an entry-level job for more than a meal a day because they're always going to be able to find somebody. Well, no, that's not true because those people willing to work for a meal a day are not going to be very highly skilled. They're not going to be good at doing very much. And as soon as they are, they're going to demand more money or they're going to go somewhere else that's willing to pay them more money. And yeah, that just it's not the way things work in a truly free market and competitive society. But Let's move on to another aspect of no regulations. There are more business opportunities. You are not having to get the state's permission to start a business. You are not having to get their permission to open a food truck. You're not having to meet all their regulations for how to operate said food truck. Now, if you operate a food truck in a way that makes people sick, you're going to get sued, you're going to get go bankrupt, and you're going to go through this whole court system that we had talked about earlier. So you probably shouldn't do that. But you may be willing to take a little more risk and to just offer a low quality product that you can make cheaply and easily, but it's really yummy and people actually want it and make a little bit of money. Maybe you're making enough to actually put food on your table. That's possible. You are not restricted by the state from being able to do whatever kind of business you want to do. You want to sell drugs? Sell drugs. You can grow pot on in your backyard, in your house, you know, wherever you want to grow it, and then you can sell it. There's no one stopping you. And if you are competitive in that, then you can make money. It doesn't matter. There's plenty of business opportunity when there are no regulations or restrictions. Now, there are still going to be some sort of restrictions and regulations that exist throughout society because you have insurance companies that want to make sure that their businesses and their individual customers are taken care of and they're not at a high risk. So they want to make sure that everybody that's interacting with these businesses and individuals are compliant to at least a bare level of restrictions and regulations to make sure that everything's kosher and doing well, you know, blah, blah, blah. There are checks and balances in this system, yes. But overall, no regulations means more opportunities. That's the point here. So there also would likely be some more socialist or communal communities that you could join. There are plenty of people that like to live in community. There are plenty of people like hippies, like the Amish, like many other groups that want to just live in their own self-sustaining community. This exists all over the world, and there would likely be lots of these communities. They also are not going to have to meet all these regulations and forcibly pay taxes and everything else. So they are more free to live however they want to live. Now, if there is a community like this and you're poor, it's probably a lot easier to go join. You work with whatever it is they do. Maybe they have a factory. Maybe they just farm. Who knows? I would be willing to bet that there would be some sort of community out there that a poor person can go to, pitch in, and live. And yeah, they wouldn't die of starvation on the street or get pushed through the welfare system that we have today that, yeah, has... So many benefits. So the last thing I will mention here would just be that without the state being involved, you would probably have religious organizations that would step up and fill that void. If you look at the fall of the Roman Empire, when Rome fell and the Roman bureaucracy as a whole, mostly at least, fell, these positions and these state powers didn't really exist anymore. So what did exist? Well, the church. At that time, it was the Catholic Church, and it still existed. It survived, and not only that, it thrived. Bishops that owned land, they became lords and rulers over their land. The church held a lot of sway for everything. If the state, the Roman government, was no longer there to provide 
a court system and to provide defense and to provide policing and these types of things, the church actually did step up. Historically, this did happen. And so we do have examples of governments falling and societies that are fairly stateless and the church stepping in and filling that void. And I am sure that there are other religions other than Christianity that have it in their religious beliefs to take care of the poor and to look after society and live in a moral way. I am sure that those exist. I know that those exist. I'm just not going to go into the detail of all those and how they all look at life. So this episode is getting pretty long and I still have multiple topics to cover. So I'm going to cover these fairly quickly. If you want more on these, then feel free to ask. Send me an email and maybe I'll do a special episode where I go more in depth on whatever specifically you want me to get into more. But To go over these quickly, we've got pollution. That's a big issue. How are we going to deal with pollution and externalities? Well, you have property rights here. Everybody owns everything. And so lawsuits would handle most of this. Someone owns a river. And if a factory is on a river and polluting into the river, the river owner will then sue the factory owner. And you go through the court system and, yeah, not going to get into all that again. But basically, everybody can sue anybody that's an effective party And if there are lots of parties that are only minorly affected, they can group together and they can sue that way. So there are many ways of doing this. They can also forcibly defend themselves and their property. So that's another option that would not be so nice for this polluting factory. And there are other options there. In addition to that, it's a little too expensive to engage in pollution in a stateless society It's not like you have a government that says, hey, you can pollute up to this amount and you'll be just fine. And so that's what companies do. They pollute up to that amount and they're just fine. Sometimes they fudge a little bit and go a little over, but still, they're given plenty of leeway and that's cool. In a stateless society where people probably actually care more about their property because they own all the property, they probably don't want people to pollute at all, or at least at a very bare minimum. And so with this, if there is a company that does pollute a lot, This would likely become public knowledge through media of various types, and people would probably not want to do business with them quite as much. So if you have companies that are known for being polluters, then you probably have customers that are less likely to buy their products and services. Probably other businesses are going to be less likely to use their products and services as well. More than likely, insurance companies are going to be less likely to give them an insurance policy on their company, which then gets very risky and very expensive. Same with defense companies. And even if you can get a defense policy or an insurance policy, it's going to be really expensive if you are one of these polluting companies. In addition to all this, it's just bad PR in general. It has plenty of bad effects for a business. You would also likely have ratings agencies in a sense, some sort of agencies that would go around and they would give ratings to different companies and factories and businesses and rate them on their pollution output and different things like this, how they treat their workers, you know, blah, 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 all these things. And they would probably get paid by, I would guess, insurance companies to do this research. And that way the insurance companies can insert that into their models for risk assessment and things like this. And this information would probably also be publicized and then people would have access to this. So it's not like this would just be private information. Businesses would be incentivized to make sure that they get a good rating because although it is not mandated by the state through force for them to get a certain rating, they, for competitive reasons, would be incentivized to get a good rating because that means that they're going to get a cheaper insurance policy, a cheaper defense policy, 
probably a few extra customers, probably more room in negotiations with other businesses because they have more leverage here because they have an A plus rating. Don't you want to do business with us? It's going to make your company look even better too. And so things like this. So these are many different ways that pollution would likely be taken care of and be kept in check. Um, Again, there's more to it, but I'm trying to keep this a little more quick. What about people that just want government? Some people want a government. They want to be told what to do. They want laws and stability, and they just like the idea of a government. You know, America. And there are plenty of countries around the world that feel the same way. Very patriotic, very nationalistic. Well, they can do that. This is a free society. If you want to set up your own government over your own region, you are more than welcome to do so. So you probably could do that. You would have different governments that might be set up over like a city or even just a little neighborhood or maybe over an entire region of a continent. Who knows? This could still work. You could still have actual countries. If the whole of America was stateless, you could still have Mexico as a state and Canada as a state. That's very possible. They could just be states on the borders of this large stateless society. Who knows? So the point is that if you want a government, you can have a government. And there's nothing stopping you. And it can be at any level. Not only can it be at any level geographically, it can be at a non-geographic level. So you could even have certain law codes and certain governmental policies that you could ascribe to no matter where you live. So let's say there is this technocratic government that's set up and we live in a stateless society in what is now America. And this new technocratic startup government is saying that they are going to provide a universal basic income. They're going to provide your health insurance. They're going to provide protection for you. And, you know, there's all these other things they're going to do. They're going to have their own court system and all this stuff. You know, most of the stuff that governments do, they're going to do these things and they're going to do it very efficiently through algorithms and lots of data and, you know, all this stuff that they're doing. It's all very technology and data driven. And that's something that maybe you really buy into. You really like that. Well, you don't have to live in a certain area to join up under this government. You can join up right where you live in the middle of your stateless society. You are going to be forced to pay some sort of taxation. Either that or it's going to be voluntary, but then if you don't pay, then you get kicked out of this governmental entity, whatever you want to call it, whatever they want to call it. But if you want to be a part of it, then there's probably a certain amount. Say you pay you know, 20% of your income goes to this government, then this technocracy is going to take all this money and do all the things that they're going to do. And so something like this could definitely exist without physical borders even. It's very interesting, especially with the internet and with all the ways of communicating and traveling and dealing with technology and data nowadays. There's so many different options. But if you want a government, basically you can have your government, whatever kind of government you want. So you just can't force that on anybody else. So let's go into the next thing. I did skip over land and animal protection. That to some people seems very trivial. To some people, that's a very big deal. So I have to touch on it. With this, Everything is voluntarily funded, and so voluntarily funded organizations will likely buy land en masse and protect it, and that would be your basically your state parks. You no longer have state parks because there is no state, so you have private parks that would probably offer camping and tours and different things like this in exchange for you paying them money, and you pay money to enter the park and that kind of stuff, and that's how they make profit. 
maybe they don't even make a profit. Maybe they sustain themselves off of donations. And there are just enough people that really want to preserve a special place, a place that has special value. Maybe you have somewhere like the Grand Canyon in the United States that is really important to people. And maybe there are plenty of people that would pitch in to make sure that that area is completely bought up, completely owned by this entity, this nonprofit organization that just takes care of this land. And they do sell tickets to come in and you can see the Grand Canyon. They'll give tours. You know, they make some money, but don't necessarily make a profit. They're driven by donations. And this is very possible. You also have millionaires and billionaires that do this in today's world. They buy up large chunks of land just to set it aside and do nothing to it, just to protect the land and nature and the animals. There are people that would love to jump into Brazil and buy up large sections of the rainforest there to make sure that it's protected, and they would be willing to pitch in. Even individuals that would be willing to pitch in five bucks a month if they can make sure that they are meaningfully contributing to taking care of the rainforest. So again, many different ways that people would pitch in and pay for this or private groups would make money off of these lands. Lots of possibilities here. Also, in general, all land is privately owned. Everything is owned. We've talked about the renter versus owner dilemma here, and it's the same thing. If you own property, what do you think you're going to do? You think you're going to trash it and lower its value greatly and increase the cost of maintenance? Or do you think you're going to take care of it for the long haul for the sake of you and your family or whoever you sell it to? Well, probably for the long haul. Now, of course, not everybody's going to do this. But as a large general rule, most people will do this. Now, do you think most people treat state land this way in today's world? Well, no, that's the state. They're going to take care of it. You know, they're stealing my money through taxes anyway. So let them pick up the trash and I'll throw it on the ground. You know, I don't personally do this and I don't recommend that you do this, but lots of people do this. And that's the way a lot of people look at things. But if it was their land, or if it was somebody else's land's going to come track them down if they damage their property, then they're probably less likely to have this sort of outlook on life when it comes to land and animals. And same with animals. Cruelty of animals is an issue, but all animals live somewhere. And so whoever controls the property has probably, I would guess, would have rights over the animals that live there as well. And if someone came in and killed, let's say, some monkeys that were on person A's property, then person A would be able to sue and seek reparations from the person that killed the monkeys on his land. And so even though the monkeys can't sue the person and there is no person that, you know, really owns monkeys as a whole, if the monkeys are on this person's property, then they probably have the rights to all the natural resources, including the animals on the property. You know, that's one way that it might be taken care of. Another way is maybe that someone might get put on a list. You have large lists that would definitely exist in stateless societies where people that have been found guilty of different things would be posted on there and there would be some sort of verification checks to make sure that everything's legitimate and publicized and all this stuff. Yeah, we're not getting into that either. But the point is that if someone is convicted of animal cruelty, then they probably would be on a list that would show that they are convicted of animal cruelty. Even if those animals were on their own property or the property owner allowed them to be cruel to those animals, there are plenty of people throughout the world that are not going to look too kindly on this person that tortures animals. And with that being the case, 
this person might actually suffer some sort of consequences by people that are vehemently defending animals around the world. Now, in addition to this, you might have companies that would be unwilling to do business with someone that tortures animals. You probably have plenty of individuals that don't want that person on their property, businesses that don't want that person on their property, and lots of issues like this. So you have this societal pressure that would also exist for someone that, you know, for example, is you know, torturing kitty cats. And, you know, no one likes someone that tortures kitty cats. And so they will definitely look to be looked down upon and there will be consequences for your activities. Now, moving on, let's get to child abuse. Now, that is something that was the biggest issue for me personally. How do you deal with child abuse? It's a really big problem here. So number one, you have an age of maturity that is probably going to be different for everybody. But for the time period that a child is under the age of maturity, then they are not going to be able to really take care of themselves. They can't really take their parents to court when they're three years old. That just doesn't work. So how does this work? Well, in general, the ownership rights, and I'm calling it ownership rights is a very loose term for lack of a better term, but basically the parents would have ownership rights over their children until the children hit an age of maturity. So until a child is able to take care of themselves, then the parents basically are stewarding the rights of that child themselves. And they are expected to take care of the needs of that child. Now, there are consequences if they do not do so. In addition, they are the ones that suffer the consequences if the kids do something wrong as well. So basically, parents are responsible for their own kids. That's not anything new or wild or crazy. But the issue is, who are they responsible to if they abuse their own child? If they really own the rights to their child, in a sense and they are responsible for their child, and it's on their own property, then, you know, who's to stop them from beating their kid up every day? Well, in a way, it's basically not very different from today's problems that we have now. Now, you actually can report somebody for child abuse to whatever your local agency is that deals with that with your local government, and that does exist. But someone has to know that it's happening, and they have to actually report it. So, yeah, that's a problem that we have today. And we do have agencies that deal with this stuff. And it is still a problem even with these agencies. Now, in a stateless society, I guarantee you there will still be people that are looking out for innocent children. If there is any charity that's going to get some support in a stateless society, it's going to be the one that makes sure that children are not raped and abused. That is the one that is going to get funded probably the easiest out of any other charity in the entire world. So I, I personally, at least, am 100% confident that there will be some group to report to. Now, the question is, what right does that group have to come in and do anything about it? Well, number one, the parents have initiated force on the child. And so with that, they are giving up their right to not have force initiated upon them. And this is all based on the assumption that this society is living under the non-aggression principle, which is probably the most likely rule of the land, in addition to all kinds of common law that will be in existence through the court system. And I'm sure there'll be specific regulations about how you treat children there. But basically, if you just get down to the most simple level, that would be it. And so whatever this agency is, Someone would call and report some child abuse to the agency. The agency comes in 
and investigates. And if they find that this is the case, they remove the child from the parents. The parents have relinquished their rights because they initiated force upon their child. And yeah, problem solved. Very similar to the way it is today. Another thing is that this is a society with totally free markets. There is no state regulation. And so this exists for kids as well. If there are parents that have kids and they can't really take care of them and kids are annoying and they're crying, instead of just shaking them to death and then basically being murderers, they would actually be able to sell their children and make money off of them. That's a much better option for these horrible parents. And I'm not saying that's a good thing to do, but I am saying that if there are bad parents out there that are neglecting their children and they can't pay for them, they don't want to pay for them, they don't want to take care of them, not only are they going to be relieved of the burden of having to deal with these annoying little babies, they're actually going to get paid to get rid of them. So yeah, there's some incentive there to go ahead and take people up on that offer. So you do have this free market for kids that exist, which would increase the incentives to sell children by neglectful parents. Another factor that I think would come into play here would again be insurance policies and defense policies and contracts. So more than likely, if someone has a health insurance policy on themselves, it probably covers the event of getting pregnant and having a child. Now, I think it would be likely that insurance companies would include a clause that if you are to have a child, they will then be covered under their own insurance policy and that that would just be an extension of your own and it would be added to the parent's policy until the time the child has reached maturity and goes out on their own. Now, with this being the case, then a child will be under contract with an insurance company and that insurance company is incentivized to make sure that that child is taken care of because if the child is not and has to go to the hospital, the insurance company pays for it. If the child dies, the insurance company pays out a life insurance policy. So if the child is not well taken care of, the insurance company likely loses money. It's a brand new child. They have not paid into the system very much. The parents have not paid into the insurance system very much. So they definitely want that child to live a long and healthy life so that they can make their profits. So they will definitely be incentivized to make sure that children that are born, and they will likely know when children are born because they pay the bills to the hospital when the mom has the baby. And so they will be incentivized to make sure that these children are well taken care of because they are the customers of the insurance company. So they'll probably send people around to check on them would be my guess. You'd probably also have rules against abuse and you would have different forms of enforcement on this within different policies and within different physical locations. So with policies, for example, if you have a contract with a defense company, which most everybody will. It's basically like paying a very small amount every month to have police services and court services. That's going to be a very popular option that people will pay for. With this, there's probably going to be a clause in there that says that you don't abuse children and that if you have children and you abuse them, they're going to be taken away from you. Something like that. And so the defense companies would also be involved in this as well, and they would have policies there that people have signed up to and signed a contract for, and so that's another factor that comes into play here. Now, when I talk about physical locations, again, all property is owned. It's all private property. So more than likely, different business owners, different housing investors that own rental property or things like this, people that own campgrounds, it doesn't matter. People that own anything are 
very, very likely to have in their policies that no one on this premises may abuse a child, and they may define what child abuse is in their own terms to make sure that people are fully aware and that they are covered when they have to go to court over it. And so with this, there will be laws and regulations of a sort within each individual property that will protect children from being abused. You don't need a government or a state in order to make a law of the land that children can't be abused. You can have individual companies, individual property owners, individual people and concerned citizens that can make sure that society is operating this way. It is definitely possible, and I think I have laid out many ways that this could occur and likely would. So moving on to the final topic, that would be guns. So bottom line is most people will have them. I mentioned this before. With this, there's less incentive to initiate crime on a stranger because more than likely that stranger actually has a gun or some sort of defense or a defense contract from a defense company that is much more responsive than police departments of today's world. In today's world, if a crime is committed, the criminal really has no fear of the police catching them in the act. Because if I'm just going to hold a gun to somebody's head and say, give me your wallet, by the time they give me their wallet and I run away, cops don't even know that I've committed the crime. And they are not actually trying to stop crime in that way. They really just have no mechanism for doing so. Instead, they patrol. And if they happen to come across it, then they jump in. And if they get a call, then they react as quickly as they can and try to get there. But they're not very preemptive in this. I would be willing to bet that there are certain defense companies and certain specialized services that they would offer that would be much more proactive. And they would probably offer different types of devices and sensors and things like this that would allow them to be alerted immediately if one of their customers needs assistance. And I'm sure their customers would be very fond of a plan like this as well. So that's one thing. In addition, anyone can get any gun. And so there are no restrictions that are holding people back from arming themselves in a stateless society. Now, I would argue that this is not very different from today's society. If you really want a gun, you can get one. And if you can't get around your local regulations and restrictions, then buy a 3D printer and print one. You might have to buy a few metal pieces that you attach on there, but you can get a gun. If that doesn't work for you, go to your local gang or cartel or mafia and you can buy a gun through them. There are many different options here, and that is the way the world works today under states. Under states, you are always going to have gangs, mafias, cartels, people like this, because guns are illegal or highly restricted. So the only way for people to get them is illegally. Therefore, there's demand in the market because there are people that want these illegal guns and someone is going to fill that demand because it's very profitable. And that's where you have cartels and gangs and people like that that step in in these illegal markets like drugs and guns and yeah, whatever's restricted or regulated or illegal. So yeah, that's something that does not work very well under the current state system. So what about higher powered weapons and larger weapons and weapons of, I may not say mass destruction, but much larger destruction than just a pistol or a shotgun or an AR-15? What about a bazooka? What about a missile silo? What about a jet plane, a fighter jet? You know, there's lots of different options here. A tank, a battle cruiser on the river. There's lots of things that uh, do a lot of damage here. What about those? What if anybody can just buy them? Won't it be horrible? Well, I would argue that manufacturers of military equipment will have hefty insurance premiums or would be completely uninsured if they sell openly to anyone. 
they are probably going to be very selective on who they sell this equipment to because whoever is providing them with insurance and defense contracts is probably going to make sure that that is stipulated in their contract. And they don't want to cover a company that just sells bazookas to someone that was just convicted of murder two weeks ago. That's probably not going to go over well. It's probably not very good for business either. If you're a gun manufacturer and you are selling weapons to convicted criminals, people are probably not going to be very fond of that. You're probably going to lose some of your customer base. That's probably not a very good thing for business. So that is something that would definitely keep things in check as well. You have the behind the scenes things with insurance and contracts. You have the PR problems that we've talked about before with pollution as well. And that's just the way it works. So you also have the issue with insurance companies, defense companies, and an individual that owns, let's say, a tank. If I own a tank, I guarantee you that my insurance policy is going to be sky high compared to if I did not own a tank. My insurance company is much more likely to be liable for damages that I cause if I am driving around with a tank. And so I am a much more costly and risky asset to insure. Therefore, my policy would be much more expensive. If I can afford that, then hey, cool. But more than likely, I can't, or I don't want to, and it's not worth it. So probably the people that have tanks and bombers and things like this are probably defense companies or very rich individuals that for some reason feel like they need them or want them or who knows what. You're not going to have common criminals that are going to be driving a tank down the street and trying to steal people's money. That's very, very, very ridiculous. Uh, Yes, it's technically possible, but it's technically possible in today's world as well. So although you would not be incentivized to have these high powered military weapons of various types and crafts of various types, you would probably actually be incentivized to have self defense weapons that were on a much smaller scale, because more than likely your insurance premiums and definitely your defense premiums would probably be lower If you, number one, had a weapon for defense, and likely, number two, would have to be paired with that, you went through a training course that was offered by your defense contractor that taught you how to use your weapon in defense in a safe way, in a way that defends you and causes the least amount of harm and damage to other people and property, and all this kind of stuff. So you're probably going to get a discount if you have a pistol that you carry with you at all times if you go through a training course and you can prove that you are safe with it. Now, again, there is likely going to be consequences if you go to court and you're convicted of some sort of crime where you misused your weapon and things like this, and there's lots more consequences and blah, blah, blah. We're not going to get into all that because, again, like I said, episode's long. I'm wrapping it up. So that's all I'm covering for this episode. It's a very interesting topic to me personally, hopefully for you as well. I really enjoy the idea of anarcho-capitalism and exploring all of these objections and ways that it could or couldn't work and incentive models and all this stuff. I find it very interesting. I find it to have a lot of potential, maybe not a lot of likelihood, but I do feel like it is a viable option at least. And that's about as far as I've gotten with it. So that wraps up our series on government. We looked at arguments against government from a moral perspective. We looked at arguments that were more practical about how government was inefficient and ineffective. Then we looked at what a possible voluntary government would look like. And yes, I argue that that could exist. And then in the episode, the 
official episode, series episode before this one was the one on anarcho-capitalism. And then this one is the one on objections to anarcho-capitalism. And that wraps up this series. The next series starts next episode with an introduction to blockchain. And although I say introduction, even if you know what blockchain is and know what Bitcoin is, hopefully you still will find things that are interesting to you here and some new information and new perspectives. I hope that the same has been true for those that are already exposed to anarcho-capitalism. I know I do have many people that are on the libertarian side that listen to this show, and so hopefully you have been exposed to anarcho-capitalism before and are well aware of what the concept is. But also, hopefully, you have still learned stuff and you have still been interested in this and seen some good arguments and some different perspectives and things like that. So hopefully I've provided that for you, and I plan on doing the same thing for the next series on blockchain. So that'll start off with the next episode on blockchain itself, and then we'll do one on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, which is the most common and well-known form of a blockchain network and how it all started through Bitcoin. And then I'll probably do another update episode and I'll tell you about the rest of the series then. So that's what's coming up and that's what we've just gone through. And that wraps up everything I have. So look at the show notes. There's a link to the website with resources and an outline and different things like that. You can go to the Patreon page and I've got some posts there for everybody as well as specific stuff for patrons. So if you want to join up and you want to contribute to this podcast and pay for hosting fees and things like this, then feel free to do so. And I would greatly appreciate it. And you do get some bonuses there. So check that out. Also on Twitter, you can follow me at foundations pc and i have recently tweeted some things about the roads a few memes about that and anarcho-capitalism so that's kind of fun you can look at that for some nice memes related to the content we've been talking about recently and also the final thing is that on the show notes is the email address so feel free and i'm actually asking you to email me and give me some feedback give me your opinions give me things that you like that you don't like that you want to hear more about Again, at times, episodes are a lot longer than I expect, and sometimes they're shorter than I expect, and sometimes there's information that I realized two days later that I should have covered and I never even mentioned. And so if there's anything, just bring it up to me, and I do enjoy hearing from you guys. So thank you very much for your feedback. Thank you for people that have left ratings and reviews. If you haven't done that yet, please do that. That really does help. That is very beneficial. So leave a rating, click the stars, leave a review on whatever iTunes or whatever you're listening to on. You can leave one on the website itself. So even if your podcast player doesn't offer a place for ratings and reviews, go to the website. Again, the link is in the show notes and you can leave a review there. I have a review on one of the episodes and it was a good one. So I'm very happy about that. I would like to add to that. So if you have more input and more feedback and more reviews, please contribute and put those on there and that really helps other people as they are looking through the episodes and looking at the podcast and seeing if it's something they're interested in and that can really help them with that so that is everything i have thank you very much for listening thank you for those who support thank you for my patron especially and also for those who have left the ratings and reviews and for those who have shared this podcast with others it is highly appreciated Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Please come back next time. I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.